how we produce food, how we engage and become good stewards of the land and its resources connected in new and different ways. There can be really radically uneven impacts of efforts to secure the water supply for a climate change future. We had schools shutting down. You literally can't go outside in many parts of the state because you can't breathe. Welcome to Uncertain Forecast, a podcast series created by the California Center for Ethics and Policy, or CCP, at Cal Poly Pomona. The focus of our podcast is on climate justice, an issue that affects people worldwide, particularly where inequality is greatest, but which is often disguised or invisible. My name is Nicole Lambrew, lecturer of urban planning at Cal Poly Pomona, executive director at Tinkercraft Design and Advocacy Group, and faculty fellow with CCEP. This podcast will explore issues surrounding climate change and inequality through a variety of means, panel discussions, interviews, and creative works by faculty and students. Our aim is not necessarily to debate approaches to climate change in California, though you will find some of that here, but rather to examine the multiple ways in which climate change is experienced by different peoples and communities with a lens on the question of justice. From artists and activists to philosophers and policy wonks, we hope to provide listeners with a varied and nuanced look at how climate issues affect the lives of Californians and others. In our second episode of the series, CPP philosophy student Emily Reyes looks specifically at the impact of climate change on houseless people in Pomona, the surrounding community outside of the Cal Poly Pomona campus. Emily interviews key organizers and stakeholders to highlight two issues in Pomona, access to food and access to adequate shelter by those most in need, the houseless population. With an eye towards understanding the challenges houseless peoples in Pomona face, Emily interviews a wide range of people on the ground experiencing these issues firsthand, as well as people working for organizations attempting to mitigate some of these challenges. We ask that if you like what you hear, if you care about these issues, please share our podcast with your friends, family, and colleagues. Let's listen in to see what Emily found out. Thanks for listening. to a little over 150,000 residents, the city of Pomona sits as the seventh largest city in Los Angeles County, right between the San Gabriel Valley and Inland Empire. About 71% of residents identify as Latino. The history of Pomona is pretty interesting, considering it was named after the Roman goddess of fruit for its rich and fertile soil. After its colonization in 1888, Pomona was even considered to be an urban garden because of its strong influence over the citrus industry, while also being one of the leading suppliers for wineries and raisin factories. This fruitful history, though, is overshadowed by its current state. According to a report from the LA County Department of Public Health in 2018, many Pomona residents experienced severe housing burden, with about 51% of residents spending more than 50% of their monthly incomes on housing costs. In 2018, there are about 689 Pomona residents experiencing homelessness. This number is now estimated to be over 1,000. Access to good quality food is also an issue. Only about 50% of residents live within close proximity to a grocery store. In 2017, there were two farmer's markets in Pomona, and only one of them accepted WIC or EBT benefits. 
At the same time, about 85% of public school students were eligible for free or reduced meals. The report also revealed that 20% of residents living 300% below the federal poverty level were food insecure. The life expectancy of Pomona residents is also significantly lower than Los Angeles County overall, maintaining about an eight-year gap. When asked about whether or not residents receive the emotional and social support they need, only about 60% reported that this was so. It may not be a surprise at this point that this number was also lower than Los Angeles County overall. I am Emily Reyes, a fourth-year philosophy major at Cal Poly Pomona. I lived in Pomona since I was eight years old, and while it may be experiencing some severe inequities, this is a place I call home. On this episode of the California Center for Ethics and Policy podcast, I will be highlighting key organizers in my community that are working to tackle two of Pomona's most significant problems, high rates of people experiencing homelessness and high rates of people that lack quality access to food. This is Dianita Blanco Reyes, a licensed social worker working in partnership with the Pomona Police Department and their Quality of Life Unit. Dianita also happens to be my mom. As a clinical social worker co-located with the, the Pomona Police Department, I have different roles. One of them, my main responsibilities uh, working with one of the uh, police officers uh, in the department is to respond to 5150 calls. That means that we respond to assess people that are in crisis, that are most of the time suicidal, uh, barricaded, uh, danger to self, danger to, to others, or gravely disabled uh, within the community. It could be an individual uh, that's homeless, uh, a citizen that lives in his home, um, somebody that's, you know, working anywhere within the city uh, boundaries. Um, that's my main responsibility. Um, I also do the homeless outreach with the HEART uh, team. I, I am, on, I am lo- co-located under the Quality of Life Unit within the Pomona Police Department. So I help with doing the uh, homeless outreach. Uh, we go throughout the whole city and we try to help people uh, with whatever it is that they need. We don't not necessarily trying to push everybody into the shelter or to find a home or to get a job or anything like that. We try to assess their strengths uh, and in doing that, usually we're able to build some trust with them. Uh, and eventually we start talking about, you know, uh, over a period of time, it does not happen on the, on the one visit. We could be going out uh, to build rapport with these individuals for sometimes nine months or a year or more. Um, so that's homeless outreach. I went out with my mom to observe what it is she does exactly. One of the clients we met with was Danielle, whose name has been changed to protect their identity. Danielle has been experiencing homelessness for a little more than 15 years and also suffers from schizophrenia. Here, she gives me a rundown of some of the work my mom and her team do. I 
got the uh, the COVID nine um, shot, oh, and sorry. I got the booster shot, and as well, I got the flu shot from them. Oh, uh, nice. They come and they help me out. Uh, they bring snacks for us. Okay. Um, if we need anything else, uh, they also as well help with medication. Uh -huh. If uh, we don't have no um, no HMOs or anything like that. They help us with that, and then once we get ourselves together, you know, or it's limited time, you know, yeah. kind of a thing. But they are a lot of help. His name is Chris. I forget the um, the young lady's name all the yeah. time. Um, but they're wonderful. They're they're a lot of help. They're oh. a lot of help. They come and, and they come with my mom or they come uh they come with your mom uh they go not only in the city of pomona but they go to a lot of different cities around um la and different areas just like your mom she travels she forgets about me but then she remembers me <laughs> but yeah the, the whole team is really good uh when i was even on uh, tri-city when um there was nobody there they just all showed up danielle also speaks about the first time she met my mom which was also particularly touching. The first one for me to meet, yes, was uh, Mrs. Reyes, your mother. And uh, she was a lot of help because I was suicidal at the time. Mm -hmm. And then I tried to pull away from that and um, she grabbed me and she took me and uh, I got out the next day, but I'm very thankful for your mom because yeah. she did really, really did help me a whole lot. I want to get a house. <laughs> she loves her. you too. I want her, I love her and I want her to get out of the street and Bed and, and I'm going kitchen. to. It's it's been a, a while, but um, she's helped me so much. Officer Flores, the whole team, uh, including Raquel. Raquel's been here patiently. Uh, thank you. One of the ways in which my mom can offer these services and get more people into housing is by developing relationships with them that are built on trust. Here, Danielle receives a hygiene bag from Sally. West Coast Outreach Director of Hubbing Home, which is an organization that seeks to support women who are sex workers as well as those experiencing drug addiction and alcoholism. Sally opens the bag for Danielle to put her snacks and paperwork in. My mom lets her know that she'll be back later for blankets that night. We also met with another client, Cecile, whose name has also been changed to protect their identity. Cecile has been homeless for over 30 years and suffers from bipolar disorder and post-traumatic stress disorder. Due to her injuries and the aches and pains that come as we age, Cecile has a wheelchair to help her get around. At this time, we see her walking on the sidewalk. Cecile shares that someone stole her wheelchair. Cecile also doesn't have any dentures, so sometimes it's difficult to understand what she's saying. That combined with cars rushing by on the street requires extra attention and focus. Somebody's, your wheelchair got stolen? Yes. When I find them, when we find them, we'll beat them. That's fine. You know when? You know when we find them? I'm gonna bring the police with me. That part right there. <laughs> there is a particular way in which my mom approaches people experiencing homelessness and mental illness that isn't fully captured in this audio recording. She bends down at eye level, adjusts the tone of her voice, and gives off an overall calm and safe kind of energy. 
When my mother is around, people feel heard and cared about. This connection and trust that she facilitates with the people she serves allows her to transition her clients into more permanent housing. But even then, it's not that easy. Receiving any um, help? Uh, SSI? No. None of that? No. Are um, you connected to Tri City? Yeah. You are? Tri City is the one we're coming out of seeing. Oh, that's good. Oh, that's good. Um, yeah, they want to make sure that, you know, everything goes right, but nothing's going right. They're going to have a program that's going to be called the Access Program. And you can go in just for a couple of hours. You can take a shower. You can get clean clothes from them. You can eat and have a smoke on the table. And then you can leave. Wouldn't that be great? Would you use those services if they had what, it? They have. You know what? They, they, what they say they do uh -huh. and what they do achieve. Okay. Another thing that we could do is that you, Officer Flores and I, we can take you, we can set up a time that you want to go and then we can go with you so that you can take a shower and get clothes and we'll just have to stay with you because the program is not open right now. But that if that is something that you want to do, just take a shower, get something warm. <laughs> the approach my mother takes when she addresses people experiencing homelessness is also much different than most. While there may be options for shelter and housing, my mother does not push her clients to accept whatever is available. She validates their human right to make their own choices. For Cecile, this means staying local here in Pomona. Okay. So. Would, you, would you think about that? Yeah. Do you want to consider housing? I guess it's your housing. Let me ask you, would you consider housing if it's here in, the, in, in, in Pomona? I need to know where it's at. You need to know where it's at? And where you want it, you want it I, to I need to know where it's about the people though. Okay, so you, want it to be, you want it to be here in the city? That it would be, matter. Could it be in LA? No, too far from me. Too far? Covina? I'm not trying to relocate. Uh-huh, okay, so then it has to be... I grew, I grew up here. It has to be Pomona. Okay. I grew up here. Okay, so it has to be Pomona. Yeah. Okay, that's fair. That's fair. I grew up, see I grew up, I went to Simon's, I went to Washington, I went to, I went to Simon's High. I didn't go again, I went to Pomona High. You went to Pomona High? As we leave, Cecile shares one more thing with me. She talks about how difficult it is to accept services and help. She shares that a lot of people in Pomona were once like her and her husband, who tried to handle things on their own. Thank okay. you for talking Thank to you. us. Thank you so much. God bless you. Thank you. God bless you guys too. Okay. We'll see. Thank okay. you. There's a lot of people out here that need you guys. Really. Yeah. So, but they, they're, they're like I was. I, was, I didn't want to talk to people like yeah. that, you know, from, from the county or knowing I needed my help and so I couldn't do it. This narrative is much different than ones people are used to seeing. People experiencing homelessness are not people that just want to feed off of state services or refuse to do anything to better their circumstances. We often shame those experiencing homelessness as if they are solely to blame for their situation, and we base their experience according to the quality of their character. 
This perspective halts any meaningful progress in this sector. I also asked my mom if she had any advice for those that might be experiencing similar obstacles, but are trying to help elevate their communities. She seemed to struggle to answer this, but here's what she says. I would say the that you just it's it's really it's really difficult to say exactly what you should do. For me, it seems like some of the some of the barriers that we keep on removing, like the medical issues, the not being able to be matched to a more permanent housing situation, uh, having a bigger shelter, uh, having uh, organizations within the city that can sort of back you up when you have no other any other resources would be helpful. Um, Pomona lacks a lot of that. Uh, and, and like a lot of the things that we have that are helping us, uh, they are coming from outside the city. They're not within the city. So having a lot of the, those resources in-house through the city council or the city mayor or even the Pomona Police Department, well, your their police department, where, wherever that is, uh, encouraging the departments to put aside money to plan for that might be helpful. And I'm not saying throw as much money as you can to the problem, but in a very, you know, organized way and calculated type of way, bring some of these resources into the community. One of the, one one thing that I noticed, and it's a phenomenon, I think, of COVID that has helped a lot the city of Pomona and the homeless population, it's something super simple. Uh, Right, because of COVID right now, we have had, the homeless people have been fed almost every single week through different programs. We have, because we have a lot of poverty in Pomona, and when you have a lot of poverty, you're gonna have a lot of hunger. And I and we have noticed that some of the crime and some of the behavior that's, you know, uh, are more aggressive or the number of times that somebody goes into a liquor store and steals the food out of the shelf has decreased. But as those programs are ending, we're seeing a rise in that type of behavior where people are just simply hungry and they have no other choice but you know, to go and grab food from the 7-Eleven or what have you. So having maybe a pantry or a cafeteria style of feeding without having sometimes a lot of the community uh, will complain that if you have a church that's feeding the homeless, the homeless tend to congregate around the church and then you have uh, a tent city around the church and that's not good for the city. But having a way where people can have access to food or cook meals within the city, I think that would help a lot because when people are not hungry, then people can think and people can plan their day. But if you're super starving, you're not going to be able to do that. Food is another issue that Pomona seems to be tackling. I spoke with Dr. Teresa Yoro about the Pomona Community Farmer Alliance which helped organize the Pomona Farmers Market that occurs every Saturday. Teresa is an associate professor in the Liberal Studies Department and affiliated faculty in the Lyle Center for Regenerative Studies at Cal Poly Pomona. In her current research, she collaborates with activists and community organizations in the Pomona Valley to study how their collective work shapes the peri-urban food system and the local environment in a community deeply impacted by the legacies of structural racism and structural poverty. So the Pomona Community Farmer Alliance was formed in June of 2018 by three women. 
who essentially saw a pretty huge gap in the city of Pomona in terms of access to chemical-free and organic food. So um, the leader, well, I mean, it was a team of three women, but one of the leaders, um, Eleanor Krizenzi, uh, essentially developed this model where the Pomona Community Farmer Alliance volunteers would um, partner with local chemical-free and or organic farms and bring their food into the community at low cost. So essentially the way this works is uh, we, we, par we partner with the farmer and then we go either to the farm itself or we meet the farmer at another location, which might be like the Hollywood farmer's market, it might be the Claremont farmer's market, and we pick up uh, our order of produce. And then we take that produce to the farmer's market the following Saturday and we vend it for the farmer on their behalf. <clears throat> Since we don't charge them anything, uh, for all of the work that we're doing, uh, they essentially are saving a lot of money. And by saving money, they're able to give us the produce at a lower price. And then we pass that price directly onto the community. So in effect, we're basically subsidizing uh, very small hyper-local farmers um, or small local farmers. Like a couple of the farmers that we work with um, are in kind of more like the central valley or central coast of California. One is located in... Um, San Luis Obispo County and another one in Bakersfield. Um, and then we have farms that are, you know, Pomona that we support as well, hyper-local farms. So um, yeah, so that's how the model works. So the model is really dependent on volunteer labor. I went to check out the farmer's market a few weeks ago. There are about 10 booths set up with tons of fruits, vegetables, bread, and these amazing dehydrated red onion flakes my friend had picked up. The atmosphere was friendly and inviting. One woman approached me and introduced me to the craft section of the farmer's market. I ended up purchasing a candle from Myra instead of the soap, but the candle is also a lotion with lemongrass scents that helps keep the bugs away. It sat beautifully in an olla from Guadalajara. I, do, I wear a lot of different hats. So I volunteer at the farmer's market on Saturday. Sometimes I vend produce at booths. Lately, I've been doing more helping with kind of like the accounting um, aspects of it. I also teach a couple of different service learning classes where my students volunteer at the farmer's market. Uh, they help by running booths or um, so vending produce um, with the most recent class. They actually have been running um, arts and crafts workshops uh, for the community. Uh, I do two pickups 
uh, one I do every Sunday and then and, um, at the Claremont Farmers Market. And then the other one I do every other Friday at Huerta del Valle in Ontario. Uh, I also write grants, um, I do research. I, when I can, I participate in community activism around like attending city council meetings, um, things like that. In her paper in Intersectional Feminist Food Studies Praxis, Activism and Care in the COVID-19 Context, Teresa takes an intersectional feminist approach to her work in food justice, which is based on the idea that the oppression of our environment is structurally linked to the oppression of women and other marginalized groups. In her paper, Teresa highlights, feminist and gender-focused research in diverse fields clearly demonstrated that women, and especially women from traditionally marginalized backgrounds like women of color, queer women, and working-class women, disproportionately engage in uncompensated caring and emotional labor, including that in activist contexts. It may not be a surprise at this point that the founders of PCFA include three members, one self-identifying as queer, gender non-conforming, and white, one as queer and white, and another as Latina. One of its founders, Elena, was even met with a choice at one point to either quit or continue working as a volunteer, even though the only two paid employees were men. Elena made the decision to continue working, but this was because of her strong ties to and empathy for the community. Women take on immense emotional and physical labor to help elevate the communities, and in most cases, are not compensated for it. Community organizers experience other obstacles as well. Teresa speaks on a few of them here. So one of the problems with our model is that our model relies very heavily on volunteers. And so there's a couple reasons why that's a problem. Um, one is that volunteers can burn out easily. Uh, there's a lot of what, what we refer to as caring labor or emotional labor that goes into volunteering. Um, and that's not really adequately like accounted for. Uh, people, uh, people, people burn out, it's hard work. Um, particularly when you're talking about, you know, another organization in Pomona called Food Cycle Collective that um, takes the food scraps, well, not scraps, but food essentially that farmers at the Pomona Farmers Market didn't sell and is at the point where it's basically gonna be at its expiration date. So they're like, we're not gonna pack this back up in our truck. We're gonna give it to you. And then there's volunteers at the farmer's market who chop up the food and then it goes, into, goes to people's houses where they combine it with meats or grains or beans and they cook the food and then they deliver it to people living in the streets in Pomona on Sundays. And then they also take all the food scraps from the farmer's market and they deliver those food scraps in these really large compost bins um, to local farms here in Pomona so that the food scraps get composted. There's a new documentary out, I forgot the name of it right now, but a new documentary out about the food waste problem here in the United States. Something like 40% of food, produced food actually goes, um, goes to waste. So this is a way for activists to really, and community organizations to address the food waste problem and also contribute in a positive way to local farms and gardens because that food waste is essentially turned into fertilizer. So volunteer burnout's a really huge, uh, really huge issue. Um, and we see in the research literature that volunteer burnout occurs like disproportionately along the lines of like race, 
um, also gender. So women tend to feel the impacts of activism differently than men. Um, we also, I've seen in my own research that, um, that activists of color or activists who are themselves immigrants or activists who are fluent Spanish speakers bear a unique burden in our community specifically because some of the most vulnerable people in our community that need care are people who are Spanish speaking only, which means that native Spanish speakers are the only ones that can address their needs and care for them. So they have a unique sort of role, which can also be an emotional burden. So as an example, I've written about this in a paper that I have published. Um, during COVID, we were taking care of um, elders in the community who are experiencing food insecurity. And that sort of mushroomed into, they were experiencing food insecurity. They were also experiencing extreme isolation and loneliness. Um, lack of access to healthcare, lack of access to transportation. So we had someone in our community who was really tasked with um, taking care of one elder in particular, and that was a really big emotional ask of her. She would take these calls and, you know, the elder that she was caring for would be crying on the phone and things like that. So um, those gendered kind of, um, you know, racialized, also related again to immigrant status and language fluency, are different ways that volunteers can be sort of burdened by, by the activism. And then finally, um, you know, volunteerism is problematic from a structural standpoint. Um, and I'll try to provide a little bit of history. So um, in, in the 1980s, we saw a big political shift in this country, which really was a shift that started ha to happen all over the world. Um, with President Reagan in the United States and Thatcher um, in the UK around embracing what we now, what we refer to as neoliberal capitalism or neoliberal political philosophy. And it was during this time that we saw a, a significant rollback in services provided by the state. So a lot of, a lot of services, a lot of um, what we refer to as a social safety net had been created and had been won due to the social movements of the 1960s and 70s. And we see President Reagan rolling back a lot of that. So some scholars refer to this as like essentially the abandonment of the state, right? So the state is abandoning its people. And it was at that same time that we saw political figures calling on nonprofit organizations and volunteers to come in and pick up the slack for the failing state. And this has now mushroomed into um, huge operations like Feeding America and other charitable volunteer food organizations that are essentially in the business of maintaining hunger because if we solve hunger, then they don't have a role to play anymore. And so there's books like Andy Fisher's book, um, Maggie Dickinson's book that really launch a significant you know, critique to um, to the failure of the state essentially to provide services and really the failure of the state to provide to ensure that people are making living wages. Because in the case of like, um, you know, Feeding America and other organizations like that, um, you know, the people are working low wage jobs, Starbucks, Applebee's, they can't feed their families. So they're the ones that are going to food pantries to get emergency food assistance. And it's the very corporations that they work for that are donating food to the food pantries. So instead of the corporations paying adequate wages, 
the corporations are getting a tax write-off by donating food to food pantries that the people that they employ are then going to to receive food. So the system is really broken. And as volunteers, in many ways, all we do is put a Band-Aid on a broken system. This is why volunteerism, in my mind, has to also be accompanied by um, activism for political change. So mobilizing and organizing around building coalitions and fighting at the city or county or state level for policies that will benefit um, that will benefit people in terms of their access to food or healthcare, living wages, um, things like that. And unfortunately, in our historical memory, those social movements were, you know, kind of a long time ago. So we tend to think of ourselves as activists, as volunteers, or, you know, I'm going to effectuate change by um, buying, you know, fair trade products or by getting an electric vehicle or by being vegan by taking all these really individual actions that are rooted in changing our consumption habits. And that's definitely important and it's critical, but when that's not accompanied by these kind of bigger pushes for structural change, changing policy, then it can be really problematic. But there are strengths of this community that organizations like PCFA can build on. Here's what Teresa says. I think that you know, within the city of Pomona, there are a lot of people that are interested in addressing inequities in health, inequities in food access, inequities in um, adequate income, inequities in um, mental health outcomes and access to mental health services. And so there's just a really strong, you know, movement and collective resistance to the ways in which um, structural forms of discrimination, like structural racism, um, structural, uh, structural discrimination around sexuality, gender, um, income have played out in a city like Pomona in ways really more profound than many of the surrounding communities. So Pomona was racially redlined back in the 1930s. And we know from, uh, from research that the legacies of racial redlining um, are still felt today in those communities in very negative ways, specifically around like health outcomes. Uh, but there's new research that's also demonstrating that um, racial redlining practices are, are connected to negative educational outcomes as well. So I just see a lot of people on the ground who are like, you know, neoliberal capitalism has failed the city. The state has failed the city. And we are going to mobilize and, and make change, you know, change what's happening here. I also asked Teresa if she had any advice for those that were experiencing similar limitations. Her response highlights the need for self-care and asking for help. Yeah, so I, I mean, obviously with volunteer burnout, you've got to take breaks and you've got to express to the people in your community or fellow activists that you need a little bit of a break and what that might look like. Um, and I, I also think that, you know, partnering with, with a supportive community or partnering with other organizations is also a really good way to alleviate burnout, learning how to ask for help, um, learning how to say that I need, we need more resources, where can we go, you know, which people can we talk to, and I mean, this is happening in, really in this, the greater Pomona Valley area right now, there's a group of us that are for um, getting together from different community organizations in Pomona that are addressing food and health and environmental um, justice. 
and we're forming an alliance that we hope eventually will be a, a coalition that will fight for structural change. Um, and we're gonna be hosting an invite only uh, conference at the end of May um, at Lopez Urban Farm to try to mobilize and organize and bring people together so that we can begin to help each other in a more coordinated way than what's been happening so far. Um, so I think that's really important. I mean, I've, I've also seen a lot of mobilization in the city of Ontario, the Perry Urban Farm, Amy's Farm, um, land has been sold to a developer and the city council is making a lot of really, um, in my opinion, terrible decisions around land use policy, uh, essentially supporting the, uh, the development of more and more and more warehouses in that community. So, you know, an unlikely alliance formed between a peri-urban chemical-free polycultural farm and the anti-warehouse movement that is pretty, uh, pretty active in the Inland Empire community because warehouses have been disproportionately cited in low-income communities and communities of color in the Inland Empire. And, you know, the whole, the whole alliance there is that you know, these two groups, while seemingly having, you know, disparate interests, we don't want to lose agricultural land and we certainly don't want to lose it to warehouses. So forming those alliances has been really powerful. They're currently knocking on doors in Ontario to get a referendum signed to stop the city council from making the decision that they passed about, I think it was about a month ago I was at the meeting. Students also play a role in community activism and leadership. I met with Chloe Lee and Jasmine Milger, the design group of the CCEP Student Fellowship, whose goal was to develop a proposal for the city of Pomona that addresses inequities in affordable housing, food, and recreational space. Here, they discuss the process and their research. So yeah, we decided to focus on uh, the specific issues that relate to the city, obviously. And we noticed that there were concerns with health, with the climate issues going on, with availability of resources and necessities, especially for the homeless population. And considering that it's largely a Latinx population, these are very serious issues. This is about people being marginalized and not being provided what is necessary. So we decided to look at these things from a design perspective, of course, and figure out how we could sort of create installments for the city instead of having to level it entirely because that's quite frankly a waste of resources. A lot of people think that design has to be, you know, just start over, start from scratch, knock it down. Chloe also shares some of the design strategies discussed in the proposal. Some of these include green roofs, hygiene stations, urban gardens, and creating spaces that foster the culture and diversity of the community. Spaces where people want to come out and enjoy the company of others. According to the statistics of environmental effects by EJ Screen, um, the statistics indicated high level of ozone, air toxic cancer risk, hazardous waste, proximity, etc. Also, it indicated medically undeserved demographics at high risk which reveres lack of access to the healthcare facility. Therefore, they were more exposed to environmental harms in such a unsupportive community setting. Um, going back to the look into the background of unsupported setting, there were two more linkages to the health issue. 
affordable housing and food insecurity issue. Um, these issues are linked each other closely because health issue is not only one made by itself, also resulted from housing and food insecurity. That's why I mainly consider them as main issues of proposal because these address issues are especially vulnerable when the climate change is threatening and it ultimately cause additional severe outcomes to the community. So um, we implemented umbrella design strategy in gathering place in town to prevent urban heat island. Green roof function instead of um, hardscape design and represent community cultural aspects. Um, furthermore, some resources offer in this site uh, community, um, such as mole wars, moss wars, community garden, softscape rather than hardscape, and community center, and um, some rest spaces for recreational purpose, and um, hygiene stations and transportation stands are um, gonna increase, uh, let the city have benefits from efficient walkability, uh, sustainability. Chloe and Jasmine also shared why the issues addressed in their proposal are climate or environment related. They discussed their interconnectedness with people and the environment, where the effects of climate change predominantly affect marginalized groups who don't have the resources to safely live in these poor environments. So we decided to look at something that could assist with all the carcinogens and the pollution in the air, which of course, as we know, contributes to the atmospheric warming and climate problems. Likewise, with all the heat that's being generated, there's a lot of people that are suffering from the heat waves, from heat strokes, and even death that's been killing people more than like tornadoes and tsunamis. So a lot of the installments that we've developed focus on places to get some shade, to relax, kind of beat the heat, have some water available. And of course, a lot of these problems tend to specifically affect marginalized groups. And because the city is mostly made up of the Latinx community, we decided to really try to encourage this cultural and community aspect with all our different socially derived installments. I would say that the issues addressed in proposal were closely related to other issues interconnected in terms of climate justice. And climate justice is not only addressing the climate issues, but also it encompasses interrelated human issues, which means more than climate risk, such as inequalities and vulnerabilities, according to the climate change. In Pomona case, um, the climate justice issues are highly linked to mainly housing justice, health, and food insecurity, which are also referred to basic human rights. Climate justice is a complicated subject because of its deep root causes, threatening impacts. Climate change affects everyone, but it, it affects the vulnerable group more than the others. In this case, um, I believe Pomona is really a representative example.
Housing and food insecurity are two sides of the same coin. They perpetuate climate injustice. Marginalized groups and people experiencing homelessness are most vulnerable to the effects of climate change and environmental destruction. If we want to tackle climate issues, we have to take more action to address the needs of people living in our communities and people with less access to good quality life. While there are many obstacles that make it difficult to address environmental inequities, there are also many activists and organizers in the community working to alleviate these environmental burdens. Some of them have been highlighted here. As my professor Nicole Lambro once said, social and environmental justice frameworks are inseparable. Climate change is a topic that touches on many aspects of our social lives and physical environments, requiring that we work together to incorporate perspectives and knowledge from different fields. Thank you for listening to Emily Reyes, CCEP Student Fellow in the spring of 2022, interview people on the ground trying to understand how the most vulnerable among us, our houseless population, accesses basic resources like food and shelter, aspects of our world that have been impacted heavily by climate change. A special thanks to all the CCEP students who worked together over the past few months to put together this podcast series and for the ongoing advice of our CCEP faculty fellows. And thanks to you for listening.